welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Suja A. Thomas, Peer and Sarah Peterson Professor of Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. We will discuss her article, The Customer Cast, Lawful Discrimination by Public Businesses, which will be published in the California Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Suja. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. The pleasure is is really all mine. I've I've followed your work for many years on a range of of different subjects, and it's been really interesting to read your work on on discrimination law. I'm, I honestly was more familiar with a lot of your work in the more civil procedure uh, and kind of con law area, um, and I really thought that this article was you know both you know, fascinating and timely in the sense that like, I think these are issues that are really on, on people's mind right now. But before we get into the meat of the article itself, I, I wonder if you could start by kind of describing the, the laws that actually prohibit racial discrimination in public accommodations. And what laws are sort of used in order to do that? And how do they, how do they work, at least in theory? Yeah, so there are two laws that prohibit um, race discrimination in public accommodations. You could even say three laws, but there are two laws that I concentrate on in the article. One is Title II, which is a part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and one is a a much older law, um, Section 1981. And um, both of those laws are supposed to protect people from discrimination in public accommodations. And I started looking at this issue uh, for purposes of this article, and I found that, unfortunately, it's not protecting people in um, hardly any ways. So when those two laws were initially enacted, sort of what were they responding to? What problem were they trying to solve? And sort of how were they interpreted in the moment in relation to the kind of policy goals that they were responding to? Sure. So after slavery was outlawed, um, there were black codes that were passed by the states to restrict the rights of the newly freed African-Americans. And then in response, Congress passed um, one of these laws, the Civil Rights Act of 1966, and specifically part of that um, Section 1981, um, and also the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Neither at the time were effective, and one, in fact, was found unconstitutional. Um, And so as a result, states and cities started passing laws that segregate um, in places, including uh, transportation and restaurants. And the Supreme Court supported this in Plessy versus Ferguson and other cases um, in the um, late uh, 19th century. And then um, the Supreme Court decided Brown versus the Board of Education, which, of course, held that separate but equal is inherently unequal. So. When the Civil Rights Act um, of 1964 was enacted, which included Title II, which protects against discrimination in public accommodations, Title II was enacted because there had been this discrimination and segregation against people of color. Um, You had this um, good decision in Brown. Um, You had demonstrations against Jim Crow laws. You had economic effects from the protests. Um, and you even had um, what I've read about is, you know, bad treatment of international diplomats. And so as a result of all of these things, Title II was enacted 
to really, you know, protect um, people against um, discrimination and segregation. You know, and in the moment, um, a lot of the issues were access issues. And so the courts were um, very good about um, saying, yes, you have to give access um, to um, uh, people of color. And, you know, obviously it was mainly African-Americans. And then unfortunately, over time, um, it became the case that the courts uh, very narrowly interpreted these laws so that there are many actions that courts um, do not find illegal. And, and these actions include um, that people can be um, followed and accused of shoplifting in, in stores and have no recourse under the law. People can be given inferior service um, in restaurants. Um, people can be given um, worse seats or or um, worse rooms in um, in hotels. Uh, so, so there are a number of ways that people can be treated um, in this inferior cla- caste, in which I call the customer caste, um, and that's how the courts have interpreted this law, which I think is incorrect. Mm. Well, so maybe you can talk a little bit then, like more specifically, about sort of exactly how and why the courts interpreted. Title II, and maybe, I guess, in a sense, it seems like reinterpreted Section 1981 in order to prohibit certain kinds of, or rather, in relation to certain kinds of discrimination, and why it is that the interpretation they adopted has, in a sense, like exempted or at least failed to address certain kinds of discriminatory behaviors. Yeah, so what they did was they with both of these laws, Title II and Section 1981, they've interpreted them to only cover uh, essentially two things, um, forced removal and denial of service. And so those are the types of claims that can get to a jury. And and that's really all I'm talking about at this point, um, is that what courts are doing is they are removing cases before a jury hears them or even after a jury hears them saying that a jury couldn't find in favor of the plaintiff. So where we have claims that survive, those are when someone is um, forcibly removed from a place, let's say the if the people in the Starbucks um, incident uh, that we all are unfortunately aware of, if they sue, they very well could win under the law. Um, if someone were denied service by um, a Denny's, um, they could very well win under the law because the courts have, in fact, interpreted the law to protect those claims. But um, courts have used a number of different ways to say that the law doesn't protect other things. Um, So, for example, if um, someone, this is a really big problem, African-Americans are followed and often accused of stealing in in stores. And this is a a common practice by stores to watch African-Americans in the um, the social science literature documents this. You can see public surveys of this as well. So this is occurring. And so many people might say, well, that obviously has to be against the law. And what courts will say is a number of things. One, Title II is a very limited law in the sense that it doesn't actually cover um, retail stores um, like a a Macy's or something like that, except in certain special circumstances. So Title II might not even be uh, available in that circumstance. 
but then Section 1981 might be available, but what the, the courts will say is that you could still purchase something. If, if, if you wanted, yes, you were followed, yes, you might have been accused of shoplifting, but you could still make a purchase. And because you could continue to make a purchase, um, the law does not protect you. That's all the law protects. And, and so those, um, those are a couple of ways that um, it's difficult to win anything but an access or service um, claim under these laws. Well, why is that then, that Title II wouldn't apply to some retail establishments or wouldn't kind of apply across the board? So what is it about Title II that would exempt certain kinds of businesses? Yeah, so originally when the law was uh, sort of set forth, they actually did have some coverage um, for retail stores, but they took that out um, in the final version. It didn't include that. And uh, I think that there was some belief that people could um, get some access in those places. Uh, and, and, you know, I... I I don't know, and I don't. I didn't see anything in the legislative history that told me anything more about it. But it was included originally, and then it was excluded. The good news is that Section 1981 um, doesn't exclude those categories, and then, um, and then sometimes some of those places can be covered if they have another place of accommodation that might be in it. So, for example, a Walmart with a subway in it is actually included under. Um, under the law, but but if Congress were to uh, to change this law, it to me, of course, you know, Title II should include uh, retail stores and grocery stores um, and other places that that are clearly places that the public you know often visits and are important places. So 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 that's um, that's one um, uh, issue is that just coverage straight under the statute um, under Title II. Um, these particular places are not covered. Um, in terms of Section 1981, which is the sort of better law um, right now because of the coverage, uh, we really do have this idea of kind of limiting it to, okay, this refers to make and enforce contracts and a contract can be completed. And courts have said, because a contract can be completed, that's um, that's good enough. There are other uh, ways that courts also interpret this. Um, they use the employment discrimination law, which um, has been um, also very narrowly interpreted by the courts. And so as a result, this area of the law doesn't benefit from this borrowing of the employment discrimination law. Um, so there are kind of a, a variety of ways that courts end up very narrowly interpreting this law. Well, so maybe you could give a few specific examples because you you talk about a lot of specific examples in in your paper of where actions on the part of a establishment seem to be motivated by racial discrimination or seem to be, you know, a function of racial discrimination and yet courts have found that a claim couldn't proceed under the circumstances. So look, what happened and why did the courts read that, reach the conclusion that they did? And I, and I guess, you know, depending on the circumstances of the particular scenarios, like why were the courts wrong? 
Yeah, so an example I would give is um, a case out of the 10th Circuit. So this was a case where there was a security guard at, the, at a mall in, in Kansas, and there was an African-American woman who was shopping, and the security guard told her to pull up her pants. And she replied that she was dressed appropriately. And the guard continued to follow her and ridiculed her and then blocked her from using an elevator. And then um, he, she turned away and the guard continued to move after her, making comments. And then he handcuffed her. And when she objected to her three other um, white guards, attack, um, tackled her. Her belongings were searched. She was prohibited from using her phone. Uh, after her mom picked her up, the guards uncuffed her uh, and told her she was prohibited from shopping at the mall. Um, and this case was dismissed at a the motion to dismiss stage. So right at the beginning of the case, as you know, Brian, and the court said that she had no claim um, because she hadn't alleged that she was prevented from making any specific purchases. And so the, the, the 10th Circuit had said in the past that freedom from racially discriminatory security practices wasn't a benefit or privilege um, of uh, a merchant's um, offer to let a person shop in the, in the store. So that's that's one example. And, and, and to me, um, in looking at the law, the reason that's incorrect is that that law, Section 1981, is being improperly interpreted um, such that they're saying, yes, she could make a she she could make a purchase if she wanted. And that's not a recognizing that all of these behaviors um, that affect her, um, that is these discriminatory behaviors that affect her, um, are also covered under the law. The, the language itself of the statute is, is quite broad um, and includes um, the, um, the enjoyment, look at the exact language, but um, the enjoyment of all benefits, privileges, terms and conditions um, of the relationship. And so that's the reason um, that to me, um, the only thing I'm saying about that case isn't that she was, that she should win. I'm saying that a jury should decide the case and of course, it should go beyond the beginning stages where there isn't even the exchange of information about um, what happened in the case. Um, something, as you know, Brian, that's called discovery. Um, so that's one, one example. Um, but um, I can give you uh, another example that I think is um, a really good example. Uh, and that involves uh, the Dave and Buster's store um, restaurant. In that case, you actually kind of see a, a nice example of how some claims survive, but some claims do not. And so in that case, you had African-American patrons um, ejected from a restaurant um, when they complained about discriminatory treatment. And so in that situation, the court said, OK, that goes forward. And they said significantly um, the testimony of white patrons cooperated the plaintiff's allegation. So even then, you know, they needed the testimony of white patrons to cooperate the plaintiff's allegation. So, okay, that case, their ejection from the restaurant case, that survives. But in that same case, um, the case, the another group of African-American customers had alleged that they were seated in the back near the kitchen um, instead of at a better table that was given to, to whites and they were referred to as you people. And um, they brought a suit and, you know, in that same case, 
And the court said, no, summary judgment, um, that um, is not actionable. Again, the idea there is that, you know, you were able to be served, uh, you, have, you had access to the restaurant, and the law doesn't protect anything more than that. It seems like part of the problem here is the, this kind of artificial bright line rule that courts seem to be drawing in this context, where it's a sort of on-off, either you received service or had the potential to receive services, you didn't, uh, or you didn't, and and they don't seem to recognize or want to acknowledge that how the service is provided can also be inflected by discrimination. Yeah, I think that's um, absolutely correct. And I think it's kind of interesting because the Eighth Circuit kind of made this comment that um, we don't think certain race discrimination is is acceptable, um, but um, it's not up to us. It's up to Congress and the president. But I do think it is the court's problem. It isn't um, in some in some circumstances. And I could talk about that. It's it's. Um, the problem of the law. But in a lot of circumstances, it really is, I think, the problem of the courts because they have unnecessarily, as you said, um, interpreted um, the broad language of these statutes. So so Title II, I mentioned a little bit about Title or Section 1981's language, but Title II refers to being entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the goods, services, facilities, privileges, advantages, accommodations of of any place of public accommodation. So you have this incredibly broad language, full and equal enjoyment. Um, and then at the same time, uh, in Section 1981, this is extremely broad language, but then this very nar- narrow interpretation of that law. And that can be contrasted with the interpretation by the courts of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, Many disabilities experts will tell you that that's not a paradigm of success. With that said, and, and I think that's you know absolutely right. With that said, in this in in some ways there have been some successes in the disability area that you don't see here. So there's a similar um, public accommodation provision for disability, um, but you see the courts actually interpreting in a way that allows for enjoyment and not just access. And so you see a perfectly analogous analogous situation uh, where courts are interpreting the same language in a much broader way. Well, so is, is the problem here that the courts are interpreting Section 1981 too narrowly or too rigidly, or that they're not interpreting it in light of the sort of language and goals of Title II or kind of a, a combination of, of the both? In other words, sort of how do you think courts ought to be approaching these two relevant existing laws in relation to each other? You know, are there kind of interpretive approaches they could take that would make them work more effectively to address what people colloquially would perceive as being discriminatory, or do the laws themselves need to be changed in order to kind of broaden them or kind of open up the potential for recognizing and enforcing anti-discrimination policies in some of these contexts? Sure. So in the context of 
Title II, there certainly needs to be changes with respect to that, just because there are, as we mentioned, um, you know, some coverage of some places like retail stores in not all those circumstances are they covered. And one thing I didn't mention also about Title II is it has extremely limited remedies. So you can only have, um, you can get attorney's fees, you can get declaratory relief, you can get injunctive relief, but that's it. Um, and as you might imagine, um, that's not a lot for someone. If you were really going to bring a case, you want to get more than that to put your effort into something. Um, and then on top of that, it's actually extremely difficult to actually get injunctive relief or declaratory relief. So there are problems statutorily, I think, with, with Title II that would be great if Congress could make changes to that. But um, separate from that, um, Section 1981 um, and Title II do have, um, both of them have um, extremely broad language. And I think the courts could, if they wanted to, approach them by looking at that broad language um, and by looking at the legislative history to which you refer um, both um, for both of them, for both of those um, those laws, and and say that the intent of these statutes were for people to, in fact, be able to actually experience and enjoy all of these places of public accommodation. And we don't have that happening when, in fact, someone is followed in a store or given inferior treatment. So I think they can use the legislative history, um, which clearly wants people to um, uh, not be humiliated. They, there's references to not being humiliated, um, references um, to uh, discriminatory or dif differential treatment. Um, so there's 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 references to that, but more importantly, the, the statute itself has extremely, both statutes have extremely broad language. Um, so, so, so if we if we put aside the language for a second and just kind of go back to how all the different ways that courts actually interpret the law, they could kind of put aside some of the ways that they do this. So one of the things that they tend to do is they, tend to um, make presumptions um, against discrimination. So they tend to credit the place of public accommodations evidence. So there was a case uh, that involved um, American Airlines where a plaintiff uh, looked to be of Middle Eastern descent and he was taken off the plane and the airline decided not to uh, rebook um, him on a flight. And a jury actually found um, that American had discriminated against the plaintiff in, in violation of this Section 1981 law. But the, the First Circuit said, um, this, this Court of Appeals said that, no, um, it, it, it's not right to have, the jury was incorrect um, because they, 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 um, they, the decision makers didn't know the plaintiff's race. And, and so you see these cases, even after jury trials, um, where courts will question um, the evidence and give preference to the place of public accommodations evidence. 
Well, so I, I, mean, I wonder, just by way of illustrating the nature of the problem, that you know maybe you could give a particular example of you know sort of a scenario that happened where a court said no. Title II and Section 1981 don't apply under these circumstances because this behavior falls outside the scope of what they prohibit uh, and why they would have done that. But also sort of like how you think in those particular circumstances, the court should interpret the language and purpose of those two statutes differently in order to find that either, yes, this is discrimination or at the very least, it's you know, potentially discriminatory and a fact finder ought to look at, you know, what actually happened and determine whether it was discriminatory or not. So I use the example of the, the, the woman who is accosted by the security guards. And I think that's an example of where the courts um, should have looked at the court should have looked this, looked at this in a, in a very different way. Um, they, they say that you can't have freedom from racially discriminatory security practices. And that unfortunately is said by courts over and over and over again. And, and so that I think is fundamentally incorrect. Um, if we, if we were, if I were to analyze this in the way that I think it should be, you would look at both the language of Title II and Section 1981, and you'd see that the language of each of those statutes provides that people should be able to have equal treatment and equal enjoyment of these places, um, including this, um, this mall. And, and so as a result, it seems to me that they're very much narrowly interpreting this language in a way that's not justified by the language of the statute. Well, so in closing, Suja, you've done a lot of work in the discrimination area, including a a book in the employment discrimination area called uh, titled Unequal, How America's Courts Undermine Discrimination Law. And, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this project fits into your broader project on on discrimination law and sort of uh, you know are there relevant parallels between how the law thinks about discrimination in the context of customers as well as in relation to <coughs> sorry i no. are there relevant parallels in how the law thinks about discrimination in relation to customers as well as how it thinks about discrimination in relationship to employees? Sure. Yes. Uh, my co-author and I, Sanders Sprino, wrote uh, this book, um, Unequal, as you mentioned, Brian. And that book um, very much criticizes the employment discrimination law and, and says that courts are narrowly interpreting the employment discrimination law um, in a way that they need not, um, given the broad language of the of the statutes, and that includes sexual harassment law, racial harassment, um, racial discrimination, retaliation. And so what we see in the public accommodations area is actually a borrowing of the employment discrimination law. And then as a result, we see that courts are using that law to actually narrow um, the public accommodations law. 
And you asked the question as to you know, whether or not there are relevant parallels. I would say that one, there are already problematic um, things about use the employment discrimination law period, which we detail in, in, um, in, the, in the unequal book. But on top of that, there are lots of differences um, between public accommodations and um, employment discrimination cases. And, and as you said, we have customers versus employees. What often what happens in the public accommodations cases is they'll say, is there a uh, similarly situated person who is treated um, differently than the black customer? And that's extremely difficult um, to show. And if you look at some of the cases, um, it's almost ludicrous what they say, because they say, well, there wasn't this person that fit exactly this criteria for you to show that the treatment was different. And so that's difficult, right? That's difficult to find someone in the same circumstances to show different treatment. And, um, and it's a little different, right? In the employment context, at least, it's sometimes available. And I'll say also that in the employment context, they don't always require um, that. Um, whereas in the public accommodations cases, they're actually requiring that um, a lot of the times, very few circuits um, don't require that. Um, and I'll say one other thing uh, that I didn't mention, we don't have a hostile environment um, kind of claim in most circumstances in the public accommodations arena, whereas we do have that in the employment context. So they haven't even borrowed some of the good stuff from the employment discrimination law, unfortunately. So yes, thank you for that question. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I guess just to follow up really quickly, I mean, the hostile environment issue seems like a really interesting one. I mean, do you think that some of the cases you describe in the paper might look different if viewed through a sort of hostile environment lens? I think that's absolutely right. Um, the only problem right now is that where they actually have recognized hostile, some type of hostile environment type situation in the public accommodations arena, they're actually further limiting it and talking about how um, the place of public accommodation has to be acting so far beyond its financial interests um, in actually proving that you actually have a hostile environment case. So even though there's a recognition of a hostile environment case, it's actually much more, um, it's got even additional requirements. It's actually very hard to win a hostile environment case in the, in the employment discrimination context too, but at least it's, it's recognized across the board. So step-by-step, step, some of these things, um, I think hopefully would have to occur over time if Congress gets involved and the courts also start recognizing that they're interpreting this, I think, in the incorrect manner. Well, thank you so much, Suja, for talking about this interesting paper. And um, I encourage readers to check it out because we only just touched the, the surface of it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.